0: Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Encore. I'm your host, Tony Franchetti. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love, the Sharon hymnal by Christopher L. Weber. Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love is a collection of over 100 hymns on a variety of topics, ranging from the church year through saints and worthies to paraphrases of scripture. Each text is set to music. The tunes range from old familiar to very new. Many hymns could find immediate use by the assembly. Others may inspire composers to create music uniquely suited to them. Christopher L. Webber is an Episcopal priest and author. Previous collections of hymn texts include A New Metrical Psalter in 1986 and Hymns of the, from the Bible from the year 2000. Recent books include Dear Friends, Letters of St. Paul to Christians in America, American to the Backbone a biography of James W.C. Pennington, a remarkable pre-Civil War abolition leader, and Beyond Beowulf, the first-ever sequel to the English saga Beowulf. And with that, I'm excited to welcome on the guest for today's show, Christopher L. Weber. Chris, I appreciate you taking time out to join us this morning. How are things in San Francisco? i a little foggy. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You've been in San Francisco a few years now, right? Nine. Nine years. Okay. Excellent. Nine years. Yeah. yeah. Nine years. yeah. Well, excellent. Great. We'll jump right into the interview here. Uh, first question, kind of just a, a general kind of broad type question, uh, way I like to start off with a lot of my guests here. But so can you just tell us a little bit about your roots and your upbringing?
1: I grew up in a little town called Cuba, New York, which many people have not heard of. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I tell them, well, it's near Olean, and sometimes even that doesn't help 90 miles south of Rochester, almost on the Pennsylvania border. Dairy country, small towns, perfect place to grow up, absolutely. I mean, why would you want to grow up anywhere else? Right. I I loved it. I was back there this summer, took my daughter and her family to see what a great place Cuba is. Right.
0: Yeah, that's special for sure.
1: um, Yeah, I I grew up there, went to public school through ninth grade. And then went away to school, private school in Connecticut Mm -hmm. for three years. Meanwhile, my family moved to Long Island. My father's an Episcopal priest. He grew up in Brooklyn and graduating from seminary, thought rural ministry sounded exciting. So he went to Cuba, New York, spent 20 years there. I grew up in a small town and graduating from seminary, thought urban ministry sounded exciting. Had my first parish in Brooklyn. So... Well, that's my roots. I went to Princeton, um, General Seminary in New York, did graduate work at General Seminary, spent five years there, married the dean's daughter, <laughs> then moved on, as I say, to urban ministry in Brooklyn. And then, I don't know how far you want me to go? My whole life, my whole yeah. life story. Tokyo, uh, in charge of the English language Anglican church in Tokyo, and then back to Bronxville, New York. Spent 22 years there and then retired to the northwest corner of Connecticut, <clears throat> where I found myself in charge of a couple of little rural parishes, very much like where I grew up. And um, spent over 20 years there until my wife's illness made us move to California.
0: So, yeah, you you've certainly uh, you lived in a lot of places, had a lot of different experiences as well. That's, you know, very interesting for sure.
1: Surprising where life takes
0: you. Yeah, definitely. definitely. My plan, really. (laughs) Of course. I one question I was really interested to hear is, you know, when did you first discover that you had, you know, a passion for writing and. I guess, to have you always, you know, enjoyed writing in a variety of styles. Uh, for those, I'd encourage our listeners to check out Chris's website, Uh, There you could find the the various different books he's read. And as I said, just a, a, a nice, a, a very cool mixture, you know, with you have, the, of course, Beyond Beowulf, the sequel to Beowulf, you have a book on marriage, you know, A Year with an American Saint. So I just thought it was super interesting to hear, you know, all the different kind of different styles that you like to write on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I do remember as a child wanting to write a novel, but I never got anywhere with it. It had something to do with people escaping persecution in the underground of Rome. I I don't know, um, never went anywhere. And I didn't ever, I don't think I ever found writing easy. I can remember grade school being assigned a 50 word essay, (laughs) 38, 39. Forty, but then you know if if you get ordained and have to preach a sermon every Sunday, you you get to the point where you can write you know about fifteen hundred words a week, right? Um, And um, I do like preaching. I uh, got into public speaking in a big way in college. My partner and I won the Northeastern national championship one year, and partly I guess that's what led me to ministry. (laughs) I like to speak. Yeah. And if you're gonna make speeches, you gotta do some writing. So basically that was it. I was writing 1500 words a week year after year after year. I can't think of anything else that I did much until I got to Tokyo and then did write articles for a few magazines that wanted, here I was an American in Tokyo who could write in English and they wanted uh, to know something about the new religions of Japan. Well, I researched it and wrote them an article. Somebody else, oh, the National Cathedral in Washington wanted an article about new cathedrals in Tokyo. The Roman Catholics had built a new cathedral. The Anglicans were planning one. And um, who was there in English in in Tokyo that could speak English and knew about cathedrals? So I wrote that. I I think really the career started, though, when I got back to the United States and in Bronxville, I got there about the time the Episcopal Church was adopting a new prayer book, and that prayer book encouraged the use of a psalm every Sunday. And I consulted the organist about how we were going to, I didn't want to say the psalm, psalms ought to be sung, but how, how can you sing them? Plain song? The organist said, No oh, congregations can't sing plain song, um, metrical psalms, well, what else did we try, Um, Jeleno psalms? He thought they couldn't sing those. I knew they couldn't because I'd done them with small congregations, but I had a a very entrenched and opinionated organist. And (laughs) finally I suggested metrical psalms. Anybody knows you can sing metrical psalms. The problem is that the metrical psalms that were in existence were all written in the 17th century and used obsolete language and, convoluted phrases the king of love my shepherd is mm-hmm. I mean, nobody talks that way so so i began writing symmetrical psalms myself right uh, and before too long i had enough metrical psalms that i thought you know maybe some other congregations could use these mm-hmm. and went to church publishing the episcopal church publisher and they said yeah that looks good and and published it Almost at the same time, an English friend came to visit me and he'd written a book that was published in England and wanted to know if I thought it could be published in this country. I said, well, I had happened to meet the head of Church of what was then Morehouse Publishing, um, Ron, Mo- Ron Mar- Barlow, who was the, the president of it, and I arranged an appointment that we could go and talk to Ron Barlow about my English friend's book. And he he wasn't really interested. But as we were leaving, he said, Chris, you know what we really need is a vestry handbook. And I said, well, let me think about it. You know, I said, I've always wanted to write the great American novel. And now you're asking me to write a vestry handbook. That doesn't sound exciting. But given a choice between writing the book that somebody asked you to write and the one that nobody wants you to write, I thought, better do the vestry handbook. So those two things, almost in the same year, the Metrical Psalter and the Vestry Handbook, launched my career, and those are still my best sellers, still in print, still selling thousands of copies every year. So uh, the lesson of that, the moral of that story is: do what they tell you to. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it'll work. But anyway, that that got me started, and mm-hmm. then looking around, I, I saw there were other things that. Perhaps needed writing like Anglican, the, the Episcopal Lutheran relationship was was growing, and I'd made a friend. This is after I retired in um, Upstate Connecticut uh, of a Lutheran pastor who was ministering in the same community that I was. We were doing things together, and I said, "You know, why don't we write a book about Episcopalians and Lutherans together?" Yeah. Yeah. So we did, and then thinking of other projects he and I could do. What about if we set out to write uh, a book about American saints? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We'll look up, you know, any American uh, who was a Christian, who did something significant, Uh, and we'll write uh, a page for each one of them, 365. Well, you start looking for 365 significant American Christians. You're looking under stones and you know, anywhere to find. I, I went to a website that listed significant Christians by uh, al- in alphabetical order. You click on A and it would give you Augustine and Ambrose and Aquinas, you click on B, you give <laughs> Boniface. And I clicked on P and it came up with James W.C. Pennington who was a black fugitive slave. And I'd never heard of him. But I thought, you know, that sounds interesting. He had written his own story of his escape from slavery. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of early 19th century language. And this man had gone on to become, he'd escaped from slavery at the age of 19, illiterate. And um, within five years was hired to teach school in Brooklyn and ordained to Presbyterian ministry and represented Christians at an international conference in London. Yeah. And given an honorary degree by the University of Heidelberg, and I thought, you know, let's, let's update his own biography, his own story of his escape from slavery.
0: Definitely. Authorize
1: the language. I, I happened to have been introduced to an, an author's agent, and I called him up and said, I've got an idea, and I, I laid it out for him. He said, no, you need to write the man's biography yourself. I said, I never wrote a biography. How do I know this stuff there? He said, somebody like that left
2: footprints
1: (laughs) (laughs) and he was right. And that turned out, turned into what I think was really my most important book. It's the story of this fugitive slave who became an internationally known leader in the abolition movement. Um, The the title I gave, American to the backbone. There was a movement at that time, American Colonization Society, had decided to solve America's race problem by exporting all black people to Africa. A lot of Black people said, hey, wait a minute. No, I don't want to go to Africa. I'm an American. I was born here. My father was born here. My sweat is in the soil of this country. And they called a convention. And Pennington went to the convention, the first ever gathering of Black leadership in America. He was in on the start of it and continued Mm -hmm. to be important in leadership of that movement up to the Civil War. I, as I say, I think that book, his story, is something that more people should read, Right, especially 19-year-old Black kids who may think that the cards are stacked against them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No, you can start at 19 with, from zero in this country, and you can do something with your life. It's possible. Here's the story. <laughs> no, right, I got invited right. last winter to go to Connecticut. No, i moved now to California, Connecticut. I got invited back to Connecticut to talk about James Pennington at a conference sponsored by a community college, Mm -hmm. community college in Hartford, who had latched onto the fact that this guy guy Pennington spent quality time in Hartford.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And here we are in a community college trying to encourage kids who don't have the greatest background to get something that they can do with their lives. And so they, they sponsored this conference and invited me to come and be one of the two speakers at it. And it, it's amazing what happens. You know, sometimes right. one thing leads to another. Yeah. And so that, that, that my career as a writer, I, I've also written a novel. I've not found anybody willing to publish it. <laughs> awesome. But I've got other things in, in line. Once you start writing, you know, you can't stop.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like you, for sure, that uh, it kind of found an itch, you know, after your first, once you, once you got going, it was just kind of, it just became second nature to you, you know, and get those creative juices flowing. And that's very cool. You know, it's, uh, and and as you said too, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't necessarily enjoy writing growing up, but you know, it's just, it's, it could still come to you. So that's uh, a lesson for everyone out there too, especially younger kids that, struggle with writing in school or whatever. So it it could definitely come to you at at a later age through your experiences. Awesome. So GIA has recently published Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love, Sharon Hymnal. So can you just tell our listeners, you know, a little bit about what they'll find in that hymnal and maybe, you know, your inspiration for the project?
1: Yeah, I guess it comes to writing poetry. And I have to say my older sister, Uh, wrote a lot of poetry. She was a published poet. Hmm. My mother loved poetry and encouraged us to listen to poetry. I can recite things that, you know, we were washing the dishes and she'd recite the storm, the the sun that dark December day rose cheerless over hills of gray and darkly circled, gave at noon a sadder light than waning. Things that, you know, she loved, she recited, I learned, but I never did anything with it, really, uh, until... I really don't know when maybe my wife became a travel agent. I traveled with her and I wrote little limerky type poems about places we'd been and things we'd seen. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then I guess one thing led to another Um, living in Connecticut, taking care of my garden thoughts would go through my mind. I found myself writing poems about the gospel of Matthew. And eventually that was published as a little tract by the Episcopal church publisher under the title Meditations on Matthew. And some of the things I wrote were sort of like hymns. And since I'd done the metrical psalms, and some reason for some reason I feel there needs to be a hymn about this and there isn't. So I would sit down and write one. And, and after a while I seemed to have quite a collection of them and wondered whether anybody would be interested in publishing them. Somehow I got connected to them. I, I don't remember that link at all, mm-hmm. but they agreed to publish some of my hymns. Yeah. And so I, I put together the collection, which has now emerged from GIA. Uh, WLP got merged with GIA. I, I got invited to a hymn society conference four years, three or four years ago, at which this hymnal was going to be produced. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't happen. I don't know what happened. Uh, then, then there was COVID and one thing and another. Anyway, it finally did come out a few weeks ago. I'm and, and meeting today with the organist from the Roman Catholic Cathedral here in San Francisco cool. to tell him about this hymnal, because yeah. I think you should know about it. He has used some of my metrical psalm texts for his own purposes in creating liturgical movement uh, music for the cathedral
2: mm-hmm.
1: so i want him to have a copy of the hymnal and um we can talk maybe about what's next in my in writing Definitely. career because i
0: do have some more plans yeah but um, is this the time to talk about the hymnal yeah yeah absolutely absolutely you could uh, tell us you know a little bit about more about the hymnal and then uh the next thing we got is just kind of and you touched on it a little bit but how you know the hymnal can be a helpful addition to you know our listeners' repertoire.
1: What's striking, I think, about the hymnal is the variety of of texts in it. There are some metrical psalm like hymns. Uh, they're not metrical psalms; they're metrical collects. There are a couple of those. The um, Episcopal Anglican collect for the first Sunday in Advent is one of the great prayers Cranmer ever wrote, and I've paraphrased it into a, a metrical hymn. There are things like that. My brother, who is also an Episcopal priest, said to me one day, there's this wonderful tune that nobody's ever written a hymn for, and why not? It's uh, Judas Maccabeus. Yeah, it's a great tune. And I, I wrote Easter words for it. I, I think that could replace welcome happy morning or some of the other easter hymns uh because the it's such a great tune uh there are hymns of uh, i mean the, the the heading is hymns of justice love and peace so there are there are hymns definitely with a social witness theme paraphrase one based on the prophet amos and Others that, that um, talk about um, displaced persons uses the analogy of Jesus' childhood, you know, mm-hmm. going as a refugee to Egypt, and then from Egypt to back to Galilee and, um, and other people now facing similar uh, threats from authority and having to travel. Uh, so that becomes a hymn. Uh, I, I think perhaps the social witness hymns are some of the most important in it. There are a, a couple having to do with funerals, one that was used for my wife's funeral, as a matter of fact, but um, there's one of those set to the tune Finlandia, and I, I think that will be useful to people. mean, you know, at, at uh, funerals, people use Easter hymns, of course, and that's appropriate but um, hymns that maybe deal a bit more particularly with feelings of loss and that sort of thing. There are some that are toward the end are some paraphrases Mm -hmm. of other people's writing. Douglas Steer was a Quaker pacifist, Anna Bernstein, a 19th century American Christian, Daniel Payne, a black bishop, Alfred Lord Tennyson, English thought there was one here I maybe it didn't make it after all. Oh yeah Dorothy Day mm-hmm. a famous Roman Catholic Christian who had a ministry to the homeless way before most people had even thought about people who were homeless right So um, Dorothy Day is there.
0: Very good. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us a little quick preview uh, of of Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love, the Sharon hymnal. Of course, that Mm -hmm. is available from us at GIA right now. So go to www.giamusic.com. You could search it by title, Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love, or you could search it by its product number as well. 003434 is the product number. Mm -hmm. Awesome.
1: Can I just say one thing about the GIA format? which I think is very effective. I mean, we've all seen hymnals. There's a hymn and you sing it. But GIA, when they publish a hymn, gives you the text, first of all, full text, without music, so you can really read it and see it as poetry and and get a feel for it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do when it's between staves of music. Right. So there's first of all that, and, and then they have some comments about aspects of the hymn what are the themes of this hymn and what would it be useful for? So it's, it's not just a hymnal, but it's a, it's a guidebook. Right. As well. And I, I think that's a great way to do it. Credit yeah. to
0: GIA. Definitely helpful. Awesome. So the uh, next question I got for you. So did your love for hymns help shape you as a priest?
1: Probably, <laughs> you know, hymns get into your bloodstream. Right. You tend to think in terms of the hymns that have meant something to you. And, um, you know, something like Onward Christian Soldiers, which, by the way, I come back to that one, um, which many of us grew up with, Mm -hmm. uh, gives you a certain feeling of a a battle to be fought as Christians. Um, There's another one that's escaping me at the moment that was an important part of my growing up oh it's um john bunyan's pilgrim a pilgrim's progress you know the the great john bunyan parable right Uh, there there are parts of that that have been in the hymnal and and i'm blocking them at the moment but anyway that that's been important it's one of those themes that resonates that uh, comes to you at at certain times and as I've done more with hymns, I think there are others of them too that tend to get into the bloodstream and be there for you when your mind's going in a certain direction. You know, we, we don't, um, there was a time when children memorized Bible passages. I don't hear that happening anymore, maybe in certain places, but not much. Um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, we were. my mother would encourage us to, Memorize a, a collect or a hymn on um, Sundays in Lent, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, something extra to do. So, that, yeah, that's been part of my upbringing, and and some of those hymns that I memorized as a child are still there, and influenced my approach to ministry. I'm sure I'm not. I, I know a lot of clergy delegate hymn choice to the to the organist, right. but the Episcopal prayer book says the priest is in charge of the music. And I've always taken that seriously and chosen the hymns myself, except the 20 years in Bronxville where there was an organist so deeply entrenched <laughs> and so much in charge of the music that it wasn't worth the fight. <laughs> and and he, he was good. He was a, a great organist and, and made good choices. Mm-hmm. But normally I, I like to choose myself the, the hymns that we're going to sing. Yeah. Right. Because they never, often that's the lesson that people take home rather than the sermon, because that'll run through your head. Right. The sermons maybe very often don't.
0: Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Hearing that, you know, that specific text will kind of stick with them for sure. Yes. Next one I got for you. Obviously, you, you served in a... Many different places. Uh, I thought it was super cool to see that you know you served in Tokyo for a while. So yeah, can you, you know, yeah. just talk a little bit about you know some of the various different congregations that you served? Well,
1: the first congregation, the Greenpoint Congregation, uh, I spent five years there, man and boy, as they say. I began working there when I was in seminary as a seminary assistant to a young priest,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then when a seminary asked me to stay on as a graduate student, I continued to work there in Greenpoint. So I'd been there for three years by the time I finally finished my seminary work. And they needed a priest. The, the priest who'd been there had moved on. And I, I loved the place and people, and just newly married, moved in to begin my ministry and my family, and all those things in, in Greenpoint. And wonderful congregation. Mm-hmm. People from um most of them first generation, Amer- many of them first, second generation Americans, all of them first or second generation, um, Irish or Polish. Greenpoint section of Brooklyn sp- specializes in Irish and Polish for some reason. And, <laughs> um, we had names in the parish like Pavlovich, Lianowicz, Kilonowski.
0: Yeah. On the other hand,
1: O'Keefe and Martin, <laughs> uh, Logan and McGinnity. So, <laughs> um Fascinating place to be. Nobody, nobody in the parish with a college education. The senior wow. one who had been to college, hadn't graduated. Wow. Uh, there wasn't a book. Sh- there, there wasn't. A, there were no bookshelves in the rectory, and I didn't have any money. The parish didn't have any money, but I needed some bookshelves. My mm-hmm. wife and I both had a lot of books, mm-hmm. and I, I made a proposal to the vestry. Look, if, if you'll split the cost with me, I've, I've got a proposal to put a bookshelf in the living room for $50. So you should put in $25. we will put in, you know, $25 back then was a lot more than it is now. Definitely. And this was a serious subject. And finally, one of the Vestermen said, but what if the next rector doesn't have any books? And I said, don't hire him. But you know, <laughs> it's perfectly conceivable to them. They didn't have any books. Yeah. Why would the priest have books? Right. So, you know, th- there were, I, I, I learned to deal with, Marital situations. I I, I imagine maybe half the babies I baptized didn't have a father present at the font, but I'll never forget Greenpoint. You know, people there, a lot of people lived on the edge. And um, there were things that I, I, you know, I relied a lot on the social workers in the Episcopal hospital.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. That, That was an enormous resource, you know, what did I know about things? Mm. They did. And anyway, that, that's where it all be- That was how I began my ministry. I learned a lot very quickly. Yeah, definitely. And then moved to a suburban parish where by the time I left, the issue had become one of school integration. My congregation grew primarily from a white community, but bordering it was a black community. And the, the high school they all went to There was was an um, elementary school in the black community, elementary school in the white community. They both Mm -hmm. went to the same high school. And the black showed up at a great disadvantage because they came from a poorer background and hadn't been challenged. And the NAACP set up a, a test case for the state of New York over school integration And first black parents boycotted the school and then white parents boycotted the school depending on who had won the latest court case. And I was preaching to the white people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what do you say? You don't say go integrate. You say, look, there are basic things we need to remember like the good Samaritan, you know, a concern for other people than yourself. These are basic Christian tenets that you can talk to without referencing the case at all
2: mm-hmm.
1: but i remember you know going to meetings where people got pretty angry
0: definitely then going
1: home afterwards uh, to you know have a cup of coffee with one of the men who had saved and scrimped and saved to be able to get his children a, a home within walking distance of a school and now this was being taken away well, what do you say to people like that right so um I've had an interesting ministry <laughs> in Tokyo where the congregation was made up of people from all over the Anglican Communion. When I, by the time I left, we had people from five different nationalities on the vestry. The senior warden was Liberian. The junior warden was English. And we were a parish of the Nihosei Kokai, the Anglican Communion in, in Japan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So my bishop was the Japanese bishop of Tokyo. And we did some things together where we could and, you know, try to learn about each other. But but there was also the, the task simply of bringing together people from England and Africa and Australia and America that, uh, you know, have different expectations of the hymns that you're going to sing at Christmas and Easter. Things right. like that, you know, that really matter. <laughs> yeah. There's no way to win that. But I remember lessons and carols at Christmas when I was able to get readers of different ages, you know, a child, a teenager, an adult, man, woman, from five or six different countries, three or four different continents. You know, it's just incredible. To yeah. Have that opportunity to witness the fact that Christianity is a global faith and that people all over the world from all kinds of backgrounds are Christians. It's, heckling. it's common, You know, the ability to go to church on Sunday. The altar guild had one woman from Liberia and one from South Africa. This was in the days of apartheid. And they worked together, came together to communion. But I remember when we had a reception in the rectory and both of them were there, the Liberian man went into the kitchen and came back, he said, I just wanted to make sure that the wine didn't come from South Africa you <laughs> have all sorts of issues in the industry yeah system. right so I don't know that I've got any more particularly to say about that I mean I ramble on but I think I've said the important things I came back from that to Bronxville which was mostly lawyers and executives and um, boring from that point of view
2: you know? Yeah,
1: but uh, challenging too and involved in the diocese at a point where um, there were challenging things happening in terms of uh, women's ministry. For example, I was on a almost immediately on I'm getting back, but on a committee that was lobbying for ordination of women, and eventually I found myself with a a woman as my assistant in the congregation. So you know, the, a boring parish in some ways, but not at all boring in others. And and then to close it out with you know, twenty more years of rural ministries back to you know where i started in a way right and um small towns and small congregations
0: yeah definitely so uh when researching your bio i thought it was you know super cool to see that you've you've traveled you know done quite a bit of traveling traveled far and wide through europe and asia and even uh climbed mount fiji i thought that was yes. super cool yes. uh, so it you maybe cool. <laughs> definitely quite you just cool. uh, Tell us, uh, you know, a little bit about that experience, uh, climbing Mount Fiji, and then maybe just a few, you know, unique, your favorite type of spots that you came across through your travels. Yeah,
1: my, my father was a great mountain climber, got me started mountain climbing in the Adirondacks as a child. And then my brother owned property in the Adirondacks. We climbed mountains with our children. So in, in when you're in Japan, the thing to climb is Fuji. Yeah. And the thing to do is to climb it in the climbing season because it's you know, snow capped mm-hmm. most of the year. But July and August, uh, you okay. can climb it. People do, lots of people do. There's a regular beaten path up and stations at every level where you, you, you purchase a climbing stick and then you get somebody at each level to, to brand it that you got mm-hmm. to that level. And you do this at night. When you get to the top, you find little sheds with uh, mattresses that you can rent. And so you try to sleep, and about four o'clock in the morning, they blast you out of bed with a horn to see the sunrise, which is why you're there. You you went up to see the sunrise on Mount Fuji. The day we were there. It didn't rise. There were too many clouds, and we finally came back down. But I had formed a group. A lot of young people go to Tokyo. I mean, Foreign Service and... Business people have the reasons to go, but a lot of young people finish college and they think, I want to see the world. And so they sign up with Burlitz to teach Japanese people to speak English or something like that. So we had a lot of young people in the parish.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One man met his wife at our coffee hour. He was from Australia. She was from England. Oh, wow. And wow. in Tokyo. and <laughs> um, Announced their engagement at a gathering I put together in the rectory. So... I got some of those young people and we decided we would climb Mount Fuji. And, and we did, you know, um,
0: yeah, that was an adventure. <laughs> For sure. So when, uh, traveling throughout Europe and Asia, uh, something I've never not done yet in my life, but what would you think, uh, what are a couple spots, you know, that were super cool to you that you would recommend to check out?
1: Well, let me say my wife at a point in her life became a travel agent ah yes and she put together tours we did two of the holy land okay Uh, we did a lot of the british isles she loved particularly scotland and i think my favorite place of all the places we've been was the great gorge in scotland okay i had no idea what scotland was like until i went there i thought it was like england only further north It's, it's like it's like the rocky mountains I mean, the, the mountains in Scotland are incredible, the crags and deep valleys and so on. And the Great Gorge, there's a road that goes down this gorge from top to bottom. We were there on a holiday weekend once, and you know, there are turnouts on the road every now and again. For, you want to stop and take a picture, you could do that. At every at every one of them, there was a piper in full regalia standing there for people to take pictures. i'll I'll never forget that's just an incredible place to be maybe the other thing that i um, the the highlight was being on the outer islands of the hebrides Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and learning that there was to be a total eclipse of the sun the next morning at like 5 a.m just at sunrise my wife and i are traveling with another couple my seminary roommate his wife and i said shall we all get up and go look at the sun no, it was, they said, well, you know, call me in the morning and I'll see. But four o'clock in the morning, none of them wanted to get up. I did, I, okay. I was the driver. And we had spotted a, a a monument just at the edge of town on a raised sort of hill, that'd be the place to go. So I, I got there and there were a dozen other people standing there and it was raining. And we're standing there, the rain dripping down on our hats and thinking, This is not going to be, you know, there's not going to be any sunrise. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And suddenly the sun broke through, this bright red orb and the black disc that began going across it until it blotted, until there was nothing left but the halo. And then back off to the other side and then black and rain again. I don't know how that happened, but just totally spectacular. And unexpected, right. So, right? The total eclipse of the sun in the Outer Hebrides—who knew? So, unexpected things happen when you travel. For sure. But, um, but yes, we we did travel to the Holy Land. We did. We did it first with an interfaith group. I can't remember what the sponsorship was, but they deliberately wanted to show clergy of different churches what the Holy Land is like. So you can invite a group of your parishioners. Mm-hmm. So we went, my wife and I are two Episcopalians. There were two Roman Catholic priests. There was a Lutheran, a Methodist, uh, some kind of far out evangelical and so on. And we're traveling around we get to Galilee and our, our Jewish guide says, "Now I'm sure you're going to want to have a Eucharist on the shores of Lake Galilee. And we all said yes, but then we couldn't agree who was going to do it. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. done. Right. You know, the, the Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutheran. My wife and I were happy to go to a Roman Catholic Mass. If one of the Roman priests wanted to say Mass, fine, we'd we'd go. And that that would be fun, you know. The the Missouri Synod Lutheran was willing to go but not receive communion. And the the Methodists and those people went somewhere else and I don't know what they did. But, you know, Christianity (laughs) tested on the shores of the Galilee, (laughs) didn't come off too well, I'm afraid a memorable experience.
0: Definitely. You know? Yeah. Awesome. No, that's super cool to hear about, about your travels like that. That's it's something to see. And you know, yeah. It only wish to travel throughout Europe and Asia like that too. That that'd be uh something to see for sure. Of course so, we
1: traveled to Tokyo while we were there. Traveled to Japan. Right. went to Kyoto. And if you go to Japan, Kyoto is where you want to go. Okay. There's the ancient shrines. Kyoto was not bombed during the war. Mm-hmm people in the foreign service who'd lived in japan got to the military and said you can't bomb kyoto you know yeah. and they didn't
2: yeah
1: we did some things right yeah <laughs> and, and that was one of them
0: definitely so definitely
1: we, we got there after we'd lived in japan about four or five years so we knew what we were looking for mm-hmm. we knew how to go about it that was memorable
0: very cool so we'll, uh, we'll wrap up on this next question here. I can't thank you enough again for, for your time joining us today. So, and I know this is a broad kind of questions, but uh, just a good way to kind of wrap us up. So what's next for Christopher Weber?
1: Well, what's next for me? I've, I've got a lot of writing projects.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I have another 150 hymns that I want to find a publisher for. I call it songs of the saints, Mm-hmm. Back to my metrical paraphrase days, I have paraphrased the writings of some of the great saints of the church from Augustine and earlier on down through the Middle Ages, Francis of Assisi, Julian of Norwich, and on down to actually Martin Luther King Jr. paraphrased some of his, well, his, his great Washington speech.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I've, I've got those texts, texts um, that I would like to get published. I have a, um, I wrote a novel. I've been turned down on that one by several publishers. Maybe I can make it palatable to them. I don't know. I'm still working on it. What else? Oh, um, yes. I've also written a biography of another of the great black abolition leaders, James McCune Smith, mm-hmm. who um, grew up in New York in the days when you could still be a slave in New York, but managed to get a good education through eighth grade. And then there was nothing, he wanted to be a doctor. But you're black, you can't be a doctor, you can't go to college, you're black. He went to an Episcopal church in Manhattan, whose rector, the second black priest in the Episcopal church, thought this kid has got potential. He wants to be a doctor. He raised money to send him to Scotland, where the University of Glasgow, he got a bachelor's, a master's and an MD in five years and came back better qualified than most white doctors. became a leader in the abolition movement. I've written his biography and for some reason I can't find a publisher yet. I think, I think my agent is on (laughs) the trail of one. Um, Beyond Beowulf, I published that privately because I thought who'd care, who's interested? But I've noticed that there's a new book, a new translation of Beowulf literally every year and spin-offs, you know, Beowulf's mother, that kind of thing. Yeah graphic novels about beowulf there's interest there Yeah. so my agent is now taking that around and, and actually does have a publisher Excellent. so i think that's going to be out in the broader market pretty soon there are always other things to write
0: yeah <laughs> once of course. i got started
1: <laughs> there, there's always more
0: right and you know more of that stuff will, will just come come to you for sure through your experiences so right awesome well that's that uh that kind of wraps us up then Chris. I appreciate it. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I enjoyed it very much. It's super, super interesting to hear, you know, about this. So I I really enjoyed it. You have a good rest of the day. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, buddy. Take care. Okay. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Christopher L. Weber, author and Episcopal priest. For a limited time, we'll offer all loyal Encore listeners 10% off Chris's new hymn collection, Songs of Justice, Peace, and Love, the Sharon hymnal. Use code ENCORE10 at online checkout. That's E-N-C-O-R-E, followed by the number 10. But make sure you hurry as the promo code will only be good through November 4th. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 23 of Encore. As always, stay tuned to GIA social media channels and soundboard.giamusic.com for updates on our next episode. Until next time, take care, everyone.